All right. Well, it's good to be with you guys again this morning. My name's Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here at River City Church. Um, excited to get to open God's Word again with you this morning. Um, so let's pray. Uh, we're going to need it because I may or may not have scrapped most of what I prepped at like 1130 last night. So buckle up. It'll be fun this morning. God, thanks for your word. Thanks most of all for you. God, and uh, just so grateful for Steph. Uh, just Man, I super appreciate her story this morning and just her being willing to talk about that. And So God, we just want to come, just want to submit under you, under your word. Uh, just ask that you would be the one that's teaching and that you'd be the one that's speaking and renewing and changing our hearts. And, and so just trust that uh, you'll use me to do that this morning. Um, yeah, so God, we just look forward to hearing from you and being with you. In your good name, amen. Amen. Well, if you've uh, been with us at all in the last couple of weeks, or, well, ever since we started, actually, uh, we've been going through the book of Ephesians. Um, the book of Ephesians is a letter written by the Apostle Paul uh, to a church uh, in the city of Ephesus, which has kind of been in kind of the, the key city in what is now modern-day Turkey, right? It was a, kind of the gateway to an area of the world known as Asia Minor at the time. And so um, it's this important city that Paul is writing to. It's an unreached kind of place. And, and so Paul is writing this letter to this, uh, these, this group of young Christians, young believers there. And... Um, this morning, as we uh, get into beginning chapter 4 in the book of Ephesians, we kind of come to a turning point in the book of Ephesians. And this is really the case in just about every letter that the Apostle Paul writes. Uh, his formula is basically remind everybody about how awesome Jesus is, and then call to action. So, so now what? If this is true about who God is and who he's proved himself to be in and through the personal work of Jesus, then... How does that change who we are? How should we live differently or, or act differently? How does it affect us, right? And uh, it's really, that, that form, that kind of rough outline, that's not an accident. It's not like Paul's just not thinking like, oh, well, my brain works this way, so it'll, be, it'll just work best. Like, it's like a intentional, right? The order is not by accident. In fact, the order is incredibly important, you see, uh, for the rest of uh, the book of Ephesians to make sense, not, not, not really to just make sense, but like, man, for it to like matter at all, for it to not just be like a list of do this and don't do this, like for it to matter in our lives in a meaningful kind of way, then uh, we've really got to get two things straight, I think. Uh, one are the indicatives of the gospel, right? And that's who we are because of Jesus, Right? The indicatives of the gospel are because of what God has done, because of who he is and what he's done in and through the person and work of Jesus, how does that change who we are? How does it affect our identity? How does it affect us? Right? What is now true? What is now different because of that? Right? Those are the indicatives of the gospel. Right? So we really need to understand that. Right? And then the second thing we need to understand are the imperatives of the gospel. Right? If those things are true, then how should our lives look different, right? If those things are true about who God is and what he's done, then how should we live in response to that, right? See, in other words, who we are because of Jesus determines how we live. It's not the other way around, right? 
See, what happens when we flip those things, right? What happens when we flip the how we're supposed to live and the who we are because of Jesus? Um, chiefly, that mostly results uh, in religiosity, right? And I would say religiosity is functionally like, basically it's like trying to earn God's favor with our own actions or obedience or behaviors, right? It's like, if I would just go to church enough or pray enough or give enough money or stop doing the bad things I, want to, I don't want to do or start doing the good things, if I would just live differently, if I would just do these things, then that's what would really please God. That's what would really honor him. That's what would really make him happy with me, right? And the problem with that is, is manyfold, but I would say chiefly it's that it robs us of joy because all of the things we are supposed to do, all of the commands that the Bible gives, all of the imperatives that are in God's word about how we really should live, they just become duty and obligation. They just become a list of rules we're supposed to follow or stuff we're supposed to do, to do or not do. And I would say it actually cripples our ability to actually do any of that stuff, right? Because what happens is when we flip the what we're supposed to do and the who we are is that we're always trying to earn the who we are with the what we do, right? And we just mess that up immeasurably and all the time, right? We try by our own effort, by our own obedience, by just like pulling up our boots, by just sucking it up enough, by trying hard enough, we try to like live in line with God and with his word and it just like, it never works. Like it just never works. It, it never has worked. It's never going to work. It's just, that's the way it is, right? But the problem is that we're all tempted to think like that. Like all of us all the time are tempted to believe that our actions are the thing that changes how God sees us. That our behaviors are the thing that affects how he views us, how he relates with us, Right? And so what happens is we, when we believe that, we get caught in this trap. It's like this cycle where we just try to work harder and try to be better and try to do more and try to do the right things to this unending amount of like weight of like guilt and duty and obligation to try to do all that stuff. And it just sucks. You have all met religious people. They're not happy people. They're just like, they just are under the weight of that like burden all the time. See, that's why we need to be reminded of the gospel all the time. Because all of us are tempted every day to believe that the things we do are really the things that change how God sees us. It's a lie that we are constantly tempted to believe. And it robs us of joy and it robs us of any actual power to actually live different kinds of lives. Because like, I just like... Newsflash, spoiler alert, right? You don't have the power you need to obey God. Like, it's not in you. It's not like a special pill you take. Like, you don't have it. You're not going to get it. The only way that we obey God is by the Spirit of God empowering us to obey him. That's it. That's the only way we do it, right? And so if we see the, the commands that are in the Bible as simply a list of things we are supposed to do, one, you, it will just crush you, and two, you will continue to never measure up to it. It is my hope this week, right? It's my hope as we've studied these first three chapters of the book of Ephesians that like 
the good news about the gospel would help to just like uproot those lies in our hearts and our lives and to burn them, to chuck them. That we might live differently, not because we're supposed to, not because of duty or obligation, but because like we desperately long to give our lives back to the one who gave his for us. That's like radically different kinds of motivations for the way that we live. And so we are going to get to chapter 4 and even 5 and 6. We're going to finish the whole book of Ephesians, right? Not today, right? But um, I think before we head into any of the imperatives, which are what's coming in chapters three, chapter 4, 5, and 6, right? The second half of the book. Um, I think we just need to revisit the indicatives of the gospel this morning. What's true about us because of Jesus, right? I think um, I had originally planned just to kind of keep powering through, right? Just to keep heading on through the book of Ephesians. But it's like 11.30 last night and I'm just like trying to like make a bunch of this stuff make sense. And I'm just like, none of this matters if like, if this is just like us like trying to live different kinds of lives. And so I felt like this morning we needed a reminder. I needed a reminder, right? (laughs) Of who we are because of Jesus, And my heart is that as we remember those things, that that's what would empower us to live different kinds of lives. So that as we study chapters three or chapter four, five, and six, the second half of Ephesians, that it wouldn't be a list of commands. It wouldn't just be um, uh, instructions for how to be better people, but it would be for us an invitation. Here's how you would respond if you knew how much you had been given. Live in this way, not because you, you need to, but because you long to. Chapter one started out this way. Started with really good news, right? If you remember all the way back in chapter one, it said, you have been predestined for adoption as God's sons. Before the foundations of the earth, God decided to love us as his people. That's not something we earned. It's definitely not something we deserve. It's not something we merited. And because of all those things, it's also not something you can mess up. It's God's choosing to love and give his love towards us. John Piper says it this way, your adoption is not fragile or tenuous or uncertain. God will not adopt you, then find out you're not worthy and unadopt you. He knows you're unworthy. That's why you needed adoption. He chose us, predestined us for adoption. This is firm and sure and unshakable. From the very beginning of this book, it says that our standing with God doesn't have to do with us. It's not about our actions or attitudes or behaviors. It has everything to do with the God of the universe deciding to love people who are unworthy of being loved. It's really important to understand too, right? The passage doesn't say, he did that because he felt bad for you. He was just like, well, they ain't got no hope without me, so somebody's got to come in and rescue these suckers, right? Like, that's not how the passage talks about it, right? It says, in love, God predestined us for adoption as sons and daughters of his. It's not of pity. It's not of duty. It's not of obligation. It's out of the overflowing, the abundance of his incredible love towards us that he said, I will, I will overflow this towards you. You haven't earned it. You don't deserve it. But I will generously and graciously pour it out on you. The passage goes on in chapter one, says that not only are we adopted as sons of God, sons and daughters of his, it says that in Christ we have every spiritual blessing. Like all of them, all the spiritual blessings, 
All of those are ours in Christ. This list, including but not limited to, is being adopted kids of God, being redeemed, being forgiven, and being given like a radically life-giving purpose and mission. It takes Paul the better part of three chapters to like start to scratch the surface of every spiritual blessing. In chapter 2, though, Paul takes a pause from all of the good news to remind us of the bad news, right? If you remember, I told a story about uh, Hannah and I and kind of the battle that it was as we were trying to get pregnant and how, um, like, man, there was a lot of months of really bad news when we were trying to uh, have our first child, Emma. And then when we found out that we were pregnant, like, Man, like the joy of that was like such incredibly good news to us because like there had been the weight of like really bad news for a long time. And so it is with Jesus, right? The bad news is that without Jesus, without his redeeming, forgiving, and saving work, that all of us are dead in our sins, we're condemned, and we are enslaved. Like the bad news is really bad news, we're dead in our sin, not just in it, because of it. All of us have done all of the things that we knew we are not supposed to do, and not just, the, not just the bad behaviors that we have, we also didn't do the things we were supposed to. And furthermore than that, sin is not just behaviors. Behaviors are just symptoms of a heart that is totally sick. See, sin is a heart condition Wrong behavior is just a symptom of that. The things that we do that we know we're not supposed to or that desire in us, like, I, I, know, there, I know I should be living this kind of way, but I'm not. Like, that, like that, those are symptoms of a heart sickness within us that's causing us in that. See, at its core, sin is not just doing the wrong thing. Sin is like mutiny towards God as king. Sin is saying, you know what, God? I don't want to be under your rule. I don't want to be under your authority. I don't want your leadership in my life. I want to be king. That's at the root of all of our sin. I think what I want will bring the life and joy and satisfaction. I know I reject that you as a good father, that you know what's best for me. And sin at its root is a rejection of God. It's not just a, ah, oh, I just did this one bad thing. How is that really bad? Sin as its root is a dethroning of God as king and an enthroning of ourselves. That's why it's really serious, right? That's why God is like, like immensely opposed to sin, because it's not just like, ah, I stole something, who cares, right? At the root of sin is a, like, that's just like a symptom, that's the outworking of it. What, at, what it's at its root is a, I know better than you, God, I will provide for myself what I think I need. I will dethrone you as king, I will enthrone myself. So we're not just dead because of sin, we're enslaved to the sin we think will satisfy. We just keep coming back to the same wells that will never give the life that we look for. And lastly, the passage in chapter 2 says, we're not just dead, we're not just enslaved, we are condemned. The passage says, we are by nature deserving of wrath. That means we deserve the punishment for our mutiny, Right? We tried to dethrone God, and God said, I will have none of that. 
The penalty for that is not just, ah, oh, well, you know, try, try better next time, right? See, God's wrath, though, is not like man's wrath. It's not a bad temper. It's not spite. It's not hatred. It's not animosity. It's not revenge. It's not moody, right? Like I can be at many times, right? It's not just like on a whim. It's not just him having a bad attitude. One commentator says, and I just thought that was so helpful, God's wrath is his constant hostility towards evil, his unrelenting resolve to oppose evil. That's what God's wrath is. See, we talked about how it's really important for us to remember the bad news, right? To feel the weight of the bad news. And not just like the weight of the bad news in general, right? Or, or for someone else. But like to sense the weight of the bad news that the all in there is really all. It's like everyone. There aren't any exceptions. It's all of us. That's who all of us are without Jesus. The passage goes on to say that we're hopeless, godless, like we, we've got no hope without him. Man, thank God for like the middle of chapter two, right? It says, but God, when you were dead in your sins, made you alive in Christ Jesus. God made us alive in Christ Jesus when we were dead, alien enemies of God. And not only did he make us alive, but he reconciled us with him that we might have a right relationship with him, all of because of Jesus' work on our behalf. And not just reconciled us with him, but God reconciled us with other people and broke down the dividing walls of hostility that separate us as people from one another. God made a new people who exist for him. They're about him. That people the Bible talks about is the church. The church is not a building or a place. The church is a people who exist for a king, King Jesus. And chapter three goes on to remind us that the mission of the church is to proclaim everywhere the incredible riches of Jesus. That's the mission. That we would like treasure and enjoy and revel in like the immense goodness of the king that we love and serve. And that like that would contagiously overflow out of us. Like, like it would not be able to be contained. It would come out of us so greatly. See, we reveal by living as a new people with a new purpose and a new mission that could never have happened apart from King Jesus. We show the world what he's like. We show his power, we show his grace by living as a community of people who live in a different kind of way, reconciled to God, reconciled to one another, right? See, the overarching theme of all of these chapters, right? The whole beginning of the book, the overarching theme is this. The phrase keeps popping up that it's all for the praise of his glory. That phrase is like a ton of times all over these passages, See, we, we don't exist for us. Our salvation is not about us. It's not even for us. It's about him. Its entire existence is so that the God of the universe would save those who are unworthy of being saved, that he would love them incredibly, and that in so doing so, he would receive all of the glory and all of the praise for being immensely and incredibly good. 
You see, we don't exist for us, we exist for him. That is like incredibly life-giving and freeing. When the world is about you, like that sucks. Like that is just like a weight that like seems like it's going to be great when the world revolves around you, but that is like a weight you and I cannot bear, right? Like it never ends well for us when that's the case. See, and here's the good news, right? Is that because God has designed us and knows our hearts, right? God knows what will bring the most life and the most joy, and that's worshiping him. It's living for him, not for us, right? See, God is not about your begrudging obedience. He is not about you just like doing the stuff on the list and like trying to merit it. Like at the root of the goodness of the gospel is that you never could merit it. You didn't earn it. And so what happens is, is that the more that we treasure Jesus, the more that we enjoy him, the more that it is like the good news about all that he has done on our behalf, like wells up in our hearts into worship and praise and lives live for God. That's what brings God worship. That's what brings him glory. You see, it's really, really easy for us to move on to the second half of Ephesians and forget what Paul just said. Like, it's really easy for us to forget the indicatives of the gospel. To just move on to the, okay, yeah, I remember that. Okay, what are, we, what are we supposed to be doing here? Like, I'm not opposed to us, like, intentionally thinking about how should our lives look different because of Jesus, right? I'm not opposed to that. We're going to, trust me, we're going to spend some time talking about that, right? But none of that matters at all if what we're trying to do is earn a standing with God rather than enjoy a standing with him and live different lives because of it. That's like radically different thinking. That's, that's like totally different kind of thinking. And also, it's a totally different kind of empowering for that to actually happen. Instead of seeing the things in the coming chapters as a list of things we're supposed to do or not do, Rather, we might see them as a joyful response, as a grateful heart longing to give everything back to the one who gave everything for us. I want to just, uh, we're just going to read one verse this morning. That's all we got time for, right? <laughs> Some of you are cheering, right? We're just going to read one verse this morning, just a snippet as we head into chapter four, right? And I just want to like, help us wrestle with like what we were just talking about, the, the indicatives of the gospel, right? Uh, reads this way. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Live a life worthy of the calling you have received. What is that calling? Like, that's the first question, right? We don't have time to like, dive the deep dive on what that exactly means, but I will just sum it up this way. At the root of our calling is that we would be adopted sons and daughters of God and that we would also not just be his sons and daughters, but we would be his ambassadors to the world. That we would reveal to the world and to the spiritual powers, to the uh, spiritual realms, that we would reveal the incredible grace and power and love of the king that we serve and who has saved us. We are a person who has been radically changed, and we are also a people who has been radically changed together. 
See, when we live in light of that, when we live into that calling, then we show, we reveal like the magnitude of who God is and what he's done. So what then does it mean to live worthy of that calling, right? Uh, as a kid, I remember uh, watching the news with my parents a lot. My dad would always watch the five o'clock news and uh, the TV was on, so I was there, right? <laughs> as a kid, right? <laughs> and I remember um, watching with my, with my dad night after night as uh, the reporters talked about uh, President Clinton and a lady named Monica Lewinsky. The scandal is well known to all of us, right? The President of the United States caught cheating on his wife with an intern at work in the Oval Office, then lied about that happening under oath and was impeached and nearly removed from office, right? Only the second president in the history of our country to have that happen, right? You see, President Clinton proved that he was unworthy of the office that he held. The position that he held, the President of the United States of America, right? is worthy of greater moral vigilance and higher character than that. The office of president deserves a better person than that, right? Notice here, I am focusing on the worth of the office, not the worth of the person. Does that make sense? The worth of the office, the, the presidency, that is like a, like a huge responsibility. See, I'm saying that because the value of the office should have kept him from dishonoring it. The magnitude of that role should have changed his actions. See, the greatness of his calling should have constrained him to live a life worthy of that calling, worthy of that honor. As Christians, we have a far greater calling than that of president. And I don't mean that we should try to deserve our place in God, with God's favor, but rather it means that we should recognize how much our place in God's favor deserves from us. The focus is not on our worth. The focus is on the worth of the calling that we've received. Again, I will say this. It means we should recognize how much our place in God's favor deserves from us. It's not a focus on our worth, but a focus on the worth of the calling. In other words, the privilege and purpose of our Christian calling is far greater than the privilege and purpose of that of a president, right? See, the presidency is a calling from man. Our calling is from God himself. The presidency attains a very high status and standing, the ruler of the free world, Right? Our calling results in sonship of God. We become beneficiaries of all that God owns, co-rulers with him. There is no higher standing than that of sons of God. The presidency lasts a few years, right? Our calling lasts for all time. The honor, if the honor and privilege of being the president should give the president a passion for integrity to honor the position that he has been given, then how much more should the, the value of the calling we have as God's people change the way that we live? It's a call to believe the indicatives of the gospel and to live in response to them. What, what is not saying, right? 
This is like super important, right? The passage is not saying live up to the privilege, live up to the calling that you received. Prove that you're worthy of it. No, like you're not worthy of the calling that you received. None of us are worthy of that calling. Like we didn't deserve it. We haven't earned it. You're never going to live up to it because you never did and you never will. We never could live up to that calling. We are not worthy of it. Instead, because you have been given a calling you are undeserving of, something so incredibly great, such an incredible gift, that we would live lives of thankfulness and gratitude because of the receiving of a gift we could never have gotten. It's a response. It's like gratitude, humility, thankfulness. God, I don't deserve this incredibly good calling that you've given me. Like that is like a gift I, I never should have gotten, but you gave it so graciously. I want to give everything back to that. Our lives of gratitude and thankfulness are revealed in our actions and behaviors becoming of the office or the calling we've received. See, we're going to get into details of what it actually looks like to honor God with our lives in the coming weeks, right? We're really going to talk about it, I promise you, right? There's some great stuff in Ephesians about that. But for now, like we, if we don't root ourselves in the truth about who we are because of Jesus, none of that stuff will matter. Our actions need to come out of right motivations with right power, but far too often what happens is that our, our actions, or at least our attempted actions, they come from this kind of thinking, right? It's the kind of thinking that's like, well, as a Christian, I'm, I'm, just, I'm supposed to be humble. Like, I'm, I'm supposed to be patient. I'm supposed to be loving. Like, that's what a Christian is. That's what a Christian does. I, I just need, I need to do that. I, I just need to get better at that. I need to work on that. I need, I need, to, I need to be better. So I'm just going to work really hard. I'm going to like really try to be more loving. I'm going to try to be more patient. I'm going to like Google the self-help books about how to do it better. Like I'm just going to be better, right? Or, or it's the thing that says, when I've sinned, I feel guilty. You feel guilty because you sin and that you feel condemnation for not living up to the calling that you had, for not living the way that you felt like you were supposed to live. And it results most often in two things, either a, I will do better next time, how could I have failed? I, I, I will fix it. I will work harder. I will train harder. I will get better. I will fix it myself. Or it results in a, I guess there's no hope. Screw it. I'm out. There's no way I could live up to that. And so there, there's a running from it. See, if we were rooted in the gospel, then here's what would happen. See, we would see the humility of Jesus. We would see his incredible patience with us, towards us. We would see his like immense love proven in his willingness to be murdered on our behalf on the cross. And we would say, God, I want to live like that because you showed it to me. I want to honor you, the king who came for me. I want to live as you have lived. I want my life to honor you and to reflect you and to be about you and for you. That's totally different kind of motivations, right? Like it, It's not, I should just be more patient. I need to work on that. It's like, no, the king of the universe was incredibly humble towards me, willing to be murdered by his own creation. My humility comes out of a willingness, a longing to honor that, to respond back to that, to reflect that. Or when we sin, right? Rightly, we feel guilty because we sin, right? But instead of 
that leading to condemnation for not living up to the call, we're reminded by the Spirit of God that we were never worthy of the calling we had. And that our performance does not change our worthiness to be called his sons and daughters. It never did and it never will. So what happens is it circles back around to a thankfulness and a gratitude and a, like a longing to, to, it's like a reminder about how much we've been given, how much we didn't deserve it. And it like fuels that tank in our hearts that longs to respond to God because of all he's done for us. See, you are going to fail. For the rest of your life, you're gonna keep proving that you're not worthy of the, of the calling God's given. Like that will happen for the rest of our lives. Like that, we are always going to keep proving with our sinful behaviors, we will keep proving that we're not worthy of the calling that we've been given. For the rest of eternity, the gospel will keep reminding us that it doesn't matter that we were not worthy, we were given a great honor. That it wasn't about our performance and our actions and our duty or obligation that earned us a role. It was about the God of the universe deciding to love us immensely. And so we're reminded that we don't deserve the calling that we have, but that we still have been given it. We don't deserve it, we haven't earned it, but it's still been given. See, guilt does not have to lead to condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It can lead to, rather, an incredible life-giving gratitude and thankfulness and passion to live for God. To live for the praise of his glory. John Stott, I think, just says it best as he wraps up. He just says, to live for the praise of his glory for the praise of his grace is to worship him ourselves by our words and our deeds um, and as the gracious God that he is and to cause others to see and praise him as well for it. See, that's a life that comes out of believing the indicatives of the gospel. It leads to a life living the imperatives of the gospel with life and joy and power and purpose not just with duty and obligation. It's really, really important that we wrestle with that stuff for the rest of the book to matter. Let's pray. God, thank you so much uh, for who you are. God, thank you for all that you have done for us on our behalf. God, without you, we are dead and condemned and enslaved to our own sins. God, we have no hope without you. And so we come running towards you, King Jesus, to receive the life that you freely offer and give. God, and we want to live lives worthy of that life you've given us, not because we can ever earn it or prove that we were worthy of it, but because we want to give everything back to you, God. We want to live worthy of that calling. We want to live lives that are like in accord with it or in response to it, God. So I just pray as, as we spend the coming uh, weeks in the imperatives, in the how we should live in response, God, I pray that your spirit might be continuing to speak the truths of the indicatives of the gospel back into our hearts. We might believe what is true about who you are and about who we are because of you. That it would give us life and joy and power to live the way we might to live the way that we should. 
We love you, God. Thanks for loving us so much. We, we long to give ourselves back to you. Amen.